Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study tonight, we need to make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study God's Word. Scripture says that when we are walking by means of the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit is working in us to produce spiritual growth and uh, enables us to understand His Word and to understand how to apply it in our lives. But when we sin, we are out of fellowship. We're walking by the sin nature and the way to recovers to simply confess our sins to God. And when we do that, then we are uh, restored to fellowship. The ongoing sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit continues, and we continue to go forward in our, in our spiritual life. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to, have, uh, to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's wonderful that we can come together tonight to be refreshed by a study of your word, to be reminded that in times of uncertainty, times of chaos, times when there are many uh, dangers, there are many threats of war, uh, many uh, uncertainties about the economy, that we can be reminded that history is in your hands and you are the sovereign of of history, and you are the God who is working out a plan in human history to bring things to a, an ultimate conclusion that will bring judgment to sin and evil and will glorify you. And as we study, continue our study in the book of Revelation, may we be reminded that it's just not about finding out about the future, but finding out about your, your righteousness and your justice, and it is how you are going to bring to a conclusion uh, these judgments on sin and evil in human history. We pray that you would help us to understand the things we study this evening and that the principles that can apply to our lives will be clear to us by God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Revelation chapter 16. We come down to the sixth bold judgment. But before we get into that, we'll have just a little review as to the general structure of the book of Revelation. Revelation really is, is built on these three series of seven judgments. The rapture of the church occurs before the tribulation begins. We don't know how much time will uh, take place between the rapture of the church and the beginning of the tribulation. The rapture of the church ends the church age. The tribulation begins when the Antichrist... Uh, called the beast, the first beast in the book of Revelation, signs a peace treaty with Israel, which will bring peace to the land of Israel, but not necessarily peace to the world. There will be uh, conquests and wars, as we've studied in the first and second seal judgments that take place around the world, but there is this guarantee of peace for the nation Israel, that takes, and that will cover the first half of the tribulation. So the tribulation is really a period of seven years as defined in Daniel chapter 9, as we've studied many times in Daniel's 70th week, each of three and a half year periods. Sometimes this is referred to as a time, times and a half a time. Sometimes it is referred to as 42 months. Uh, sometimes it is referred to as uh, three and a half years. This is the layout. Of the, of the tribulation with a midpoint that is uh, defined by the abomination of desolation. Now, we've seen in our study that the first two series of judgments 
take place in the first half of the tribulation period. Now, there's different uh, schemes, and we've covered those before. It's how uh, different students of prophecy have organized these, but I believe that this best fits the scenario in the uh, in the Scripture. I may be modifying this soon, but I think this is uh, pretty close to the way it's going to be. One modification I've done to this chart tonight is that there is a in the first half of this, in the first part of the second half of the tribulation, there's the mention of these seven thunder judgments that are sealed up and not written. John is told not to write them down, and that's uh, described in Revelation 10:4. And so that takes some time for those to develop, but it's just passed over in that one verse, and usually that's not put into a chronological scheme or layout. Of, uh, of the tribulation period. And then the last part of the tribulation period describes these seven bowl judgments. And I believe that they happen uh, fairly rapidly. Uh, for example, when you get to the fifth bowl judgment, the uh, we, re- we read last time in Revelation 16:11, the day that is the earth dwellers, uh, were in tremendous pain. Uh, the fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast, uh, and his kingdom's full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and those sores go back to the first uh, bold judgment when uh, that bold is poured out and people are covered with these foul, loathsome, evil, cankerous sores that are extremely painful. So they're still suffering from those Soars by the fifth bowl judgment. So that indicates that it's a maybe four, five, six months, but it's a relatively short time as things are brought to a conclusion during the tribulation period. So that's the seven bowl judgments there at the end. So we have the seal judgments, then the trumpet judgments. There are certain similarities that take place between them, but what's interesting, and I just really paid attention to that today is that you don't have a you don't have a description of overt demonic involvement in the tribulation notice i said overt demonic involvement in the tribulation until you get to the fifth trumpet judgment and then the fifth trumpet judgment the sixth trumpet judgment both involved uh the the demonic and then you have the of course the demonic and the bold judgments so it, it seems that the first, the first part of the ju- these judgments are definitely um, more in terms of God's uh, providential judgment through the use of natural catastrophe. And then there's these unleashing of demons uh, during the last two trumpet judgments and on into the bold judgments. So last time we looked at the bold judgments that come during the uh, last part of the tribulation, the bowls, the uh, bl- the seas are turned into blood. All the seas are wiped out. In the trumpet judgment, it was just a third. And then in the third of the salt water, then a third of the fresh water was destroyed. And in the bowl judgments, it's all of the salt water is destroyed. All of the fresh water is destroyed. The sun begins to scorch uh, human. We have real global warming takes place then. Uh, there's darkness on the throne of the beast, and the, the mankind just continues to uh, resist and refuses to repent, which we find hard to uh, understand. But this just shows that when men have rejected God, nothing will bring them back. Their hearts are set on that. And that is why there is an eternal punishment for them, because no matter what what God does, they are not going to ever turn to God and trust him and believe in Christ. And then the sixth uh, judgment, which I just ended with the last time, the drying up of the Euphrates, and then the uh, seventh will be the earthquake um, and hail that comes upon the earth, just preceding the coming of the Lord at the end of the, the tribulation period. So that's the overview. We saw that this section of the bold judgments was first introduced in Revelation 15:6 when seven angels come out of the temple of God in heaven and have these seven plagues, 
which are the seven bold judgments. They're clothed in pure bright linen with their chest girt in golden bands, picture of the uh, judgment of uh, the um, so their garments are those emphasizing purity and righteousness and similar to the dress of the Lord Jesus Christ in the image in Revelation chapter 1. So they are then told to go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God upon the earth. And we studied the first five of these. And so this time we're on the sixth bowl judgment. So we come to Revelation 16, verse 12. And we read, then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, this bowl judgment is a little different from the other ones. The other ones pour, bring a judgment, something horrific upon mankind immediately, but this one has no immediate effect on humanity. It simply dries up the Euphrates in preparation for what is about to transpire in the gathering of the armies of mankind against the Lord for the great day of the Lord. Uh, the Euphrates is significant here. The mention of the Euphrates is significant because the Euphrates was on the eastern border, the eastern boundary of the land that God had promised to Abraham. Back in Genesis 15:18, we read, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So when we look at a map, we see over here along the Mediterranean, we see the land that God promised to Abraham. Then we see the area of the Dead Sea here, and then across the great desert all the way over to where I have the red circle, and that is, let me see, over here, the red circle, and this is where Babylon is located. Notice Babylon, which is the seat of the power that is opposed to God, opposed to Christ, opposed to Israel during the tribulation period, the seat of the power of the Antichrist, which is mentioned, and the destruction of Babylon is described in the next two chapters, that that is on the Euphrates. And the Euphrates runs uh, from the uh, northwest to the southeast. It runs through modern, uh, starts up in modern Syria and runs down through modern Iraq. And whether this involves the upper area of the Euphrates or the lower area of the Euphrates, the river itself dries up so that these armies from the east can come across. Now we think, well, why in the world would we have to dry up the Euphrates today? Because don't we have uh, all kinds of airplanes and amphibious vehicles and other things that can uh, create pontoon bridges and all kinds of ways to ford the river? So apparently the technology, as I've stated before, uh, technology seems to be somewhat diminished in the end times because of all of the different judgments, the earthquakes and everything else that transpired, the hail, the uh, asteroid showers, all of these things, I believe, will pretty much wipe out a lot of the uh, infrastructure, satellites, technology, those things. So this will prepare the way for these invading armies to come in from the east. Now, when we think about the significance of the Euphrates, uh, it's significant because it is that eastern boundary of the land that God had promised to Abraham. So everything from the from the Euphrates on up into Syria, down through uh, modern Iraq, all the way across to the Mediterranean, all of this territory was originally part of God's land grant to Abraham. And they never occupied, Israel has never occupied all that territory, and they won't occupy that territory until uh, the Lord returns and establishes, uh, establishes his kingdom. So it is significant for that reason. Now, a question is often raised at this point. Is the mention of the Euphrates symbolic or literal? Now, this applies also to the mention of Babylon. 
And if you have been around Bible churches long enough and you've been around uh, studies on prophecy, studies on revelation long enough, then you remember there was a time when the vast majority of uh, prophecy scholars and prophecy teachers taught that that Babylon was really sort of a code word for the revived Roman Empire. It wasn't literal Babylon because literal Babylon was destroyed back in the uh, back before Christ, and with the it just wiped out, nothing left, and that um, Babylon had, that judgment announced by God in Isaiah chapter 13 has been fulfilled. But the reality is that with more study in recent years, uh, Charlie Dyer, Dallas Seminary, did a great work on this, the rise of Babylon that came out uh, providentially just as the first Gulf War was uh, breaking out, uh, pointed out that Babylon has never been destroyed in the sense that it is uh, described in in, uh, Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13 says that it will be uninhabited, never inhabited again, Arabs will not place their villages there, and that it will be a place where only the jackals and hyenas gather. And yet that has never been true in history. Babylon continued to be a site of a habitation through the period of the of the early church. There were still uh, many Jews who lived there in the time of the uh, early church. Peter wrote to them in 1 Peter, and there are those who have taken that reference to be an allusion to Rome, but nowhere in the scripture is the term Babylon ever used with this kind of a symbolic value. And that was just a failure to apply a literal uh, interpretation to Babylon. Same thing with the Euphrates. Nowhere else in scripture is the river Euphrates mentioned with a symbolic value. It always has uh, a literal reference to the literal river Euphrates on which the uh, ancient city of Babylon uh, was located. And down through the ages, since the uh, close of the New Testament, there have been Arab villages that have existed on the site of ancient Babylon. And back in the 80s, uh, Saddam Hussein spent a tremendous amount of money continuing to uh, rebuild uh, Babylon, and he had several uh, festivals there hoping to resurrect Babylon as a, as a great and glorious city again. Uh, going and he linked himself uh, in the images that he had, the posters that he that he displayed. He linked himself with Nebuchadnezzar, seeing himself as a new Nebuchadnezzar. Well, obviously, uh, he failed to fulfill those dreams for himself. But the Iraqi government today is still rebuilding uh, Babylon, and so we believe that there will be something that causes a resurrection of that city. Uh, to a future glory that will be a prominent city, a prominent economic center in the uh, tribulation period. Now, something has to happen to generate that, and I am not, I've thought, I'm not going to go out on a limb here, I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet, but I've often thought that that the fact that we had the, the, Invasion of Iraq in the in what 2000 2002-2003, where the United States forces were brought into that region, and all the things that have been going on there was not just accidental in the plan of God. That I don't know how all of this is going to work together, but the focal point of the major fighting, major battles, major issues in modern world history center on Iraq, Iran. Afghanistan, all of these areas in the uh, in the Middle East that are uh, that figure in in play and have a very dominant role in the period period of the tribulation. So when we look at a map like this and we see that uh, the scriptures here are going to emphasize this this uh, drying up of the Euphrates, we're also reminded that this has a has has already played a role in the tribulation period. If you look back just a few chapters to Revelation chapter 9, you'll remember that the sixth trumpet judgment, which, uh, which led to the death of a third of mankind, involved a demonic army 
that has been held in reserve under the great river Euphrates. In Revelation 9.13, we read, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, to release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So it seemed like there were four angels held, imprisoned, and these would be demons as opposed to elect angels, held there for a purpose. And then verse 15 says, So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year, so they are there for a purpose for that specific time period, and they are released to kill a third of mankind. This is a demonic, uh, some sort of demonic activity engineered that will uh, result in the death of a third of mankind. And the way it's carried out is through this 200 million horse, horsemen army. Uh, verse 16, now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million, and I heard the number of them, and thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, sulfur yellow, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. Now, there have been those who have tried to merge the 200 million horsemen ar- army that comes out of the sixth, uh, sixth trumpet judgment with the kings of the east that crossed the Euphrates. I think Hal Lindsey did that in late great planet Earth. But these are two uh, separate events. The event with the sixth trumpet judgment involves some sort of demonic engineered plague that will kill a third of mankind. And the event that occurs in the the fifth bowl judgment, or the uh, sixth bowl judgment, rather, will allow uh, the armies of the east to invade into the area of Israel. Now, the armies of the east, if you followed along with a lot of uh, popular prophecy teaching, often was thought of to be well, to be a Chicom army or Chinese army. And I remember back in the 80s that there were finally enough uh, Chinese to where they said they could field an army of 200 million. But this doesn't fit, that it's not... Uh, the armies of the East could be involved with uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, uh, Kazakhstan, China, Japan. All of these different countries are East, and they are their armies of the kings of the East, so it's more than one, are coming across the Euphrates into the land that God promised to Abraham for the purpose of finally wiping out the Jews. They want to... Uh, fulfill and finish what uh, Adolf Hitler began with the Holocaust. They want to wipe out all of the Jews. This is because uh, this is the final uh, shot that the that Satan is taking in order to try to show that God can't fulfill his promises. And so Satan is uh, bent on destroying the Jews and wiping them out before God can fulfill his his promises to them. So we read that uh, the great river Euphrates dries up that the way of the kings of the east can be, uh, will be prepared. Then in verse 13, verse 13 we read, start reading about the means. See, th- verse 13, verse 14, and verse 15, really 13 through 16, describe the means by which uh, this is accomplished. And so verse 13 says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So first of all, the unclean spirits. What are unclean spirits? This is just another term, a synonym for demons. A demon is a term to describe those angels which followed Lucifer in his original fall, his original rebellion against God. 
And so you have the elect angels, which are the angels who remain loyal to God. And then you have the fallen angels or the demons. And these are the angels that rebelled against God. And they involved approximately a third of all of the angels. Now, we don't know how many angels there were. Scriptures describe their number as myriads upon myriads, millions and millions, maybe even billions of angels. And a third of those angels followed Lucifer in his rebellion against God. And they're described in the scriptures as evil spirits. They're described as unclean spirits. They're described as demons. And they're also simply described as angels. Even the term in the Old Testament, sons of God, is a general term to describe all of the angels because they were all created directly and individually by God. And so all the sons of God would gather before the throne of God at various times, including Satan, as we see in passages like Job 1.6 and Job 2.1. Now, when we get into verse 13, this reminds us of something rather, rather interesting, and that is the role of the demonic, the role of Satan in the end times, in the tribulation period. We often think of it as a time of, of Satan's uh, greatest uh, uh, wrath, his greatest work on the earth, and it is, but he's not really mentioned until you get into the uh, 13th chapter or the 12th chapter of Revelation as the dragon. And demons and evil spirits aren't even mentioned until you get uh, into the fifth trumpet judgment there in Revelation chapter 9. So let's just review the role of the demonic and the angels in the end times. This, I went through this study and began to see some relationships and correlations that I had not observed before. So this is a, an important study just to help us put together what's happening in the tribulation period. First of all, we recognize that the tribulation itself, the description of the tribulation, actually begins in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, with the opening of the first seal. The opening of the first seal. And there's no mention of the demonic, no mention of Satan in the seal judgments. There's no mention of Satan in Revelation 7, which talks about the 144,000 being sealed in the first part of the chapter and the martyrs that are calling upon God for justice in the second half of chapter 7. And when you get into chapter 8, we have the uh, trumpet judgments. No mention of Satan or the demonic there until you get into chapter 9 with the fifth uh, trumpet judgment. So the demonic... The role of demons and Satan is not overt or not even mentioned until the fifth trumpet judgment in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1 and following. However, what we do see from the very beginning has to do with the role of angels in the tribulation period. And this is seen from the very beginning in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. The background, the heavenly scene in Revelation 4 and 5 describes the what is happening before the throne of God that will lead to the beginning of the tribulation period. And this has to do with God finally bringing about judgment on Satan and on the demons and on those who follow them, rebellious mankind, during the tribulation period. Now, what this reinforces for us is the intersection of human history with angelic history. And this is so rarely taught today uh, for, for a lot of reasons, and people get off into some kind of strange teaching on spiritual warfare now and then today, but they don't really follow it through to its ultimate uh, ultimate conclusion in terms of understanding this uh, intersection between the angels and mankind. Satan was created along with all of the angels at some indeterminate time before Genesis 1-1 took place, because in Job, uh, Job chapter uh, 42, uh, Job 38, 4 through 7, it's clear that the angels, the sons of God, all the sons of God, indicating they were united, all of the sons of God sang for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth. Now, if you trace out that word foundation, what that talks about is the core or initial uh, building of something, 
It is not talking about the end product. So it's talking about the core beginning of something. And so when God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1-1, at that point, or before he created the heavens and the earth, the angels, all of the angels existed, and they were still unified as one body. There was no discord among the angels. All the angels, sing, all the sons of God sang for joy when God laid the foundation of the earth, Job 38, 4 through 7. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, you clearly have Satan, this serpent. He's identified as such in Revelation. The serpent of old is the dragon, the devil. And so by Genesis 3, 1, when the serpent shows up, Obviously, there has been an angelic rebellion. So that angelic rebellion has to occur sometime between the end of Genesis 1-1 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. There's no, in, no place in the text of Genesis 1 and 2 that really indicates when that definitely transpired. There are those who believe that it happens sometime after the end of the creation week. Now, as far as I've been able to ascertain with years and years of studying this, the only argument that they really have to substantiate that is that when the, when, when God came to the end of the, of the six days of creation, he said everything was very good. And in the Hebrew word, Hebrew, that word is tov, the word translated good. And this is a common Hebrew word for tov. Uh, when you say good morning to somebody, you say boker tov. Boker is morning. So boker tov is good morning. And you add tov to any number of things, and that is just an expression of good. Now, the word good can have a moral connotation, or it can just indicate something that is according to plan. Now, what happens is you have people in the Institute for Creation Research, a number of creationists take this position because they're reacting to, in my opinion, they're reacting to the uh, uh, inappropriate assimilation of, uh, of old age, uh, old age um, science, evolution, to trying to assimilate that to the Bible by cramming it into some place, either day age theory or the old age gap view or something like that. And so they're reacting to that. And they try to argue that Satan fell sometime after Genesis 2-3. But the problem with that is, and their argument is that Tov has, is moral. It's, it means that there can't have been sin anywhere in the universe at that time, that Satan must not have fallen by Genesis 2-3. Now the problem with that is that if Tov has as its core meaning the idea of moral purity or righteousness, then you start having a problem when the word is used the very next time in Genesis chapter 2, describing uh, the fact that the man is alone. And remember, Genesis chapter 2 is describing in more detail the events of, cha- uh, of the, the sixth day. So the events of Genesis 2 occur before Genesis 2-3. They occur in the period of Genesis 1-26-28. So in, when, when God looks at Adam, it says it's not, he says it's not good for man to be alone. And he uses the word tov. Now, if the word tov has any kind of inherent moral connotation, then we have a real problem with male singleness because it would therefore be unrighteous. It would be immoral. If, if tov has morality as its core meaning, and it doesn't. I studied uh, Hebrew under Al Ross at Dallas Seminary. Al had his doctorate from both uh, from both Dallas Seminary as well as another doctorate from uh, from Cambridge in uh, in Hebrew, and in his commentary on which he he writes a commentary in uh, uh, Bible knowledge commentary on Genesis as well as has a standalone commentary on Genesis. And I had him for word study classes and other things, and he argued that Tov simply means something is according to plan. So every time you get to the end of day one, day two, day three, day four, and God says it's good, he's saying he had a blueprint. He created on the second day what the blueprint called for. At the end of the day, he said, he looked at it, said, if it's the blueprint, it's good. It's what I intended. It's what I planned. 
Day three comes along. He looks at the blueprint for day three. He builds, creates on day three what he intended to create on day three. He looked at what he created, compared it to the blueprint, said, it's good. It's what I intended. He comes to the end when he has finished all of the creation, and he says it is very good, emphasizing the completedness of the act of creation. It's all done. It is all done according to plan. He doesn't indicate anything about the moral collapse, uh, moral failure or not. So the one argument that is used to try to uh, suggest that Satan had to have fallen after Genesis uh, 2-3 doesn't hold water at all. Now, when you get to Genesis 1-2 and you read that the earth became tohu vabohu, became without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the earth, and was on the face of the deep, rather, you have three terms that are used there. Now, if it was just one of those, you wouldn't have a case. But you have three terms that are used, and they reinforce each other. Tohu vabohu is used in passages in Isaiah to indicate the result of judgment. Darkness in the Bible is never positive. It is always the result of evil. In fact, when you look at the end of Revelation, when you have the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no sun and there will be no darkness because the glory of God will illuminate everything. So when you get into the new heavens and new earth perfection, there's no darkness at all because everything is cleansed of sin. Sin is completely removed. So in this state, when sin first enters in, when God first created, I don't believe there was darkness. Darkness is always the result of sin. As is, and the term the deep always indicates something that is out of control, something that is chaotic, something primordial, something that is dangerous and uncertain. And so you have these three terms piled on each other in Genesis 1-2, which suggests that something has happened, something very negative has happened. And it seems that the best place to put the fall of Satan is somewhere between Genesis 1-1 and one two. Now, what happened historically is that this view that there is a time gap between Genesis one one and one two can be traced back. Arthur Custance did this uh, years ago, traced it back to the earliest evidence was in the second century A.D. in a in a Jewish work called the Targum of Jonathan that indicated that there was a gap between those two verses, and this was when Satan fell. There have been many others down through the centuries, all the way up to the uh, 17th century. John Milton, the famous English poet who wrote in Paradise Lost, and he wrote uh, in Paradise Lost as he describes the fall of Satan. He puts that fall between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. But none of the people from the first century up to the early 19th century had any length of time in that period between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. They just, they didn't know how long it was, but it wasn't billions and billions of years. In fact, it was generally considered to be a fairly short amount of time. Uh, what about how long Adam and Eve were in the garden? Well, that was, could not have been more than a hundred years. How do we know that? Well, because Adam is about 120 years old when Seth was born. Seth is born after Cain killed Abel. And so we know that by the time Adam was 120 years old, and his his original birth date and age would be determined from the day he was created, not the day he fell. So we know that from the time God created him until the time he fell could uh, could not have been more than probably 100 years. So it wouldn't have taken Satan long to fall, I do not believe. But we don't have to have lengthy periods of time there. It wasn't the only reason we have lengthy periods of time there is because in the development of historical geology, they began to reject catastrophic geology, which was the view that the Genesis flood was a literal worldwide uh, cataclysm. They began to reject that, and they began to look at uh, fossils and stratification layers as 
uh, indicative of age, and they developed a theory known as uniformitarianism, that everything occurs at the same basic process, same rates of decay, and so if things decay and deteriorate at a certain rate today, we can extrapolate back, and as a result of that, they started getting longer and longer periods for the age of the earth. And they would come up with ages, and in the early 19th century, the age of the earth was was rather short. It was 30,000 and 40,000 and 50,000. And so Christian scholars uh, mis- uh, mistakenly uh, would think, well, we can merge. That's 40,000 years isn't that big. We thought the earth was 5,000 years, 5,000, 40,000. That's not that big a time gap. So they tried to figure out a way to blend Genesis 1, 1, Genesis 1 with what science was coming up with. They were assuming the science was correct in dating the age of the earth. But if their dating mechanisms were all wrong, then it, it wouldn't matter. And that was the problem, is they assumed the correctness of modern geology, and they were wrong. Modern geology continued to add to those ages and continued to say, well, the earth is a 100 thousand years old, it's 500,000 years old, it's a million years old, and before long you have the earth being three million years old, and now Christians were forced to defend a view that would cram a million years or or 10 million years or 30 million years between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, and they came up with all these, that's where you put... uh, uh, the Stone Age man, that's where you put Neanderthal man, that's where you shoved the dinosaurs and everything they couldn't explain, they just shoved it in there. And that was just completely wrong. Uh, no one had done that before. Now, that's, that's, is what I call the old earth gap view. And unfortunately, uh, there's very few people who articulate a young earth gap view. Arnold Fruchtenbaum does. In fact, I saw you had uh, Footsteps of the Messiah in his appendix. He has an excellent chapter on the, what, five falls of Satan, and that's the same position that Arnold takes there, is that uh, this is a young earth, but there is uh, this is the best place to put the fall of Satan is between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And then God recreates the earth, reshapes it completely, in uh, Genesis 1, 2 through 2, 3, and for the habitation of man, because it is going to be through man and through human history that God is going to display his love and his grace in ways that he never could with the angels. And so human history, therefore, is inextricably linked to what happens to the angels, and he is displaying his grace. This is why at the end of human history, there's this reintersection of uh, angelic events, demonic history, uh, satanic involvement with human history and all of the judgment, the judgments on evil in the human race and judgment on evil in the uh, angelic realm happens at the same time. And this way you can explain all of the data that's given in Scripture. Now, a lot of some theologians are very uncomfortable with that because they think there's too much speculation there, but it's not that speculative if you look at lots of evidence and you say we have to be able to figure out how to explain all the data. And this is the only scenario that really tries to explain all of the data, and it fits with the scenario of Ephesians chapter 6 that we are involved in a spiritual warfare, and our ultimate enemy is not flesh and blood, as Paul says there, but it's against principalities and powers and authorities in high places. And it is we are part of that angelic, uh, angelic conflict. And so angels are definitely involved in the... Uh, in time events in the tribulation when all things are brought brought together. So in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, we see this heavenly scene where the Lamb is going to receive the title deed for the earth and Revelation as he comes before the throne of God. And as he does so, the angels break out in praise. Myriads of angels surround the throne of God. Different categories of angels surround the throne of God. We have the four living beings as well as all of the angels, and they break out in praise to the Lamb as he takes the seal and then begins to open the seal to initiate uh, the judgments. So in the first six seal judgments, angels are not evident 
as I said, demons are, neither angels, for it is the Lamb who opens each one of the seals. The first mention of the elect angels within the tribulation period itself is found in Revelation 7.1, when we're told that there are four angels that stand at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, which is a picture of uh, not only control of meteorology, but indicates uh, the four winds of the earth indicate all of the uh, uh, chaotic events that can take place in history. The imagery comes right out of Daniel chapter 7. The winds, the seas, all of that comes out of Daniel 7. Uh, the four angels hold back the four winds of the earth, and then a fifth angel appears ordering them to wait on releasing these winds until the 144,000 are sealed. Again, at the end of chapter 7, we see angels surrounding the throne of God and uh, worshiping God there. In chapter 10, there is a mighty angel that comes down from heaven and gives John a little book of judgments, which he's told to eat. He eats it. It's sweet on his in his mouth, but then it turns bitter in his stomach, indicating that the uh, observance of judgment, the hope for judgment is sweet, but when the horrors of it appear, it is something that is quite bitter. Then when the seventh seal is opened, we see seven angels come forward, each given a trumpet, and each one blasts on that trumpet to announce each of the next series of seven trumpet judgments. And again, when the uh, seventh trumpet judgment is blown, there are seven angels that appear in the temple of God, and they are each given a bowl, and they pour out uh, these bold judgments upon the earth. And in chapter 14, we see that three angels fly through the heavens making announcements regarding the gospel as well as the impending judgment on Babylon. So angels are uh, deeply involved, and as we see, as we get to the last half, it seems that they are visible and that they can be heard. And so uh, there seems like this curtain between the natural and supernatural is drawn back, and angels and demons uh, become more visible, and their involvement in human history seems to be more uh, interactive. As I stated earlier, uh, so we have two points I've covered so far. First, the demonic or satanic element is not mentioned until the fifth trumpet judgment. Second, uh, the involvement of the elect angels is seen from the beginning, and then I've just described that. Third, the first description of demonic involvement is in the fifth trumpet judgment. This begins in Revelation 9.1, so just turn back there with me to Revelation 9.1. The fifth angel sounded, and John says, I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. Now, this star that falls from heaven isn't a star. It is an angel. Stars are often used as a metaphor for angels. Uh, a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key. You don't give a key to a star. You give a key to a person. So the star is an angel. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit. This is the abyss. Satan is later chained there. He opens the abyss. Smoke comes out like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke come these these, uh, scorpion-stinging locusts. Uh, that are going to bring a plague upon mankind. So out of the smoke, locusts come, and they have, um, they're, they're described, their sting is described as being so horrible that it torments those who are stung for five months. Uh, it's like the sting of a scorpion, extremely painful. Men will seek to die, but can't, uh, won't die. And uh, they're described in verse 7, the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. In other words, some sort of armament, uh, insect-like. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. Breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. And as you go on and go through that description, then you come to verse 11, which says, And they had as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. Now, if you have an angel that is over these scorpions, that means these these uh, scorpion locust kings, then that indicates that they are demons, and that are released upon mankind in a visible, physical way because they're going to cause all of this, all of this harm and all of this pain and suffering. 
Now, the king over them is called uh, by the title in Hebrew, Abaddon, but in the Greek, Apollyon, it means the destroyer. Now, there's some who think that this is Satan. Now, I don't think this is Satan, because in, when we get over into Revelation chapter 12, Satan is clearly identified as the dragon. He is the dragon in verse uh, 9. It says this, the great dragon was cast out of heaven. He doesn't come up from the abyss. He's cast out of heaven. Up to that point, he is in heaven. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So when John wants to identify Satan, he makes it very clear he's talking about Satan. So Abaddon, Apollyon, is not Satan, but is a one of the chief demons who is the king or the ruler over all of these uh, scorpion locust demons that are have been uh, kept in the abyss until this particular until this particular time. Now, what's interesting is that when you go through the scope of these these uh, seven trumpet judgments, the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet judgments are called the three woes. Now, the fifth involves overt demonic activity. The sixth is going to involve demonic activity as well as the river Euphrates. And the sixth trumpet sounds in verse 13, and then we've already read through this, and this is when you have these four angels prepared for that day, that very moment, verse 15. They're released to kill a third of mankind, and the number of the army that would be under their command was 200 million. Those are released in verse 15. And these are uh, demons that bring this, this plague on mankind. Now there's a break in the action, and we have the description of the mighty angel in verse 10, verse, in chapter 10, rather, chapter 11, the two witnesses. And if you look at chapter 11, I'm floating this trial balloon, sound like a politician. I'll float this at pre-trip in a big way. Talking about the, the witnesses. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. I don't know. Anybody really deals with this. They, they, usually this is identified as Satan, the power behind the, the beast, the Antichrist. But that's not what the text says. The text, text identifies it as the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. Who is the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit? The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit is Apollyon. So it would seem to me, just as we work out a chronology of Revelation, that the fifth seal judgment has to have taken place before the midpoint of the tribulation, which I believe is when the two witnesses are killed. Aha, uh-huh. that's an aha moment, isn't it, Ruth? Yeah, I thought that this afternoon. I'm looking at that thinking, man, that, that really would indicate that and would show that what we have in the first half of the tribulation is what appears to be more natural disasters and natural judgments. But then when we get to the midpoint of the tribulation with the abomination of desolation, that is when Satan is cast out of heaven. Turn over one more chapter to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 describes the ongoing battle between Satan and Israel. And it goes back in history, going back to the beginning, using imagery that comes out of Genesis chapter 37, the imagery that was seen in Joseph's dream where he sees his father as the sun, his mother as the moon, and his 11 brothers as the, as the, as the stars. And so we read in 12.1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. And she's with child, picturing the fact that the purpose, one of the key purposes for Israel was to bring forth the Messiah. So she is uh, uh, the seed of Abraham. She's going to bring forth a child, uh, cries out in labor and pain to give birth. And then there's another sign that appears in verse 3, and this is the fiery red dragon. And the dragon is identified in verse 8. 
I mean, verse 9, as the devil and Satan. So the dragon comes along, uh, seven heads, ten horns, representing the kingdom of man, ultimately inspired by Satan. And his tail, verse 4, drew a third of the stars of heaven, threw them to the earth. So this shows, this is where we get the number of the demons as being a third of all the angels. And then the dragon stands before the woman who is ready to give birth to devour her child. Satan wanted to destroy Christ. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations. That's the Messiah from Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm 2. And her child is caught up to be with God in the throne, and his throne. That's the ascension. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. This is a very abridged, abbreviated, truncated version of history. So she flees into the wilderness where God is going to feed her there for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Then we shift the scene in chapter 12. In verses 7 to 12, go to a heavenly warfare between Michael and the elect angels fighting the dragon and his angels, and the dragon doesn't prevail, and he is cast out of heaven. That is when he is cast out of heaven and cast to the earth. And in verse 13 we read, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for time and times and a half time. What's that? Three and a half years. That's the same as 1,260 days. And so this persecution of the woman takes place during the second half of the tribulation period when Satan has been thrown out of heaven. So my, my, my speculation here, I think it's well-founded, is that when Satan is cast out of heaven in the midpoint of the tribulation, this is when you have a uh, have the demonic side of the tribulation made more evident and more visible. Now, in the past, I've I've shown that you have the first uh, seal judgments and the trumpet judgments all before the midpoint of the tribulation. But if the fifth trumpet judgment and is is the beginning of the demonic overt demonic involvement, then perhaps it's only the first four trumpet judgments that are in the first half, and then the sixth, I mean the fifth and sixth, and of course the seventh trumpet judgment would then come out in the second half. So we're going to see um, how that flies when I start trying to explain that to uh, some other people and see if we get anywhere with that. But it seems to me that that makes a lot of sense in organizing organizing that material. So what that does now is it brings us back to an understanding of Revelation 16:13 where you have again the the use of demons by the antichrist, by the dragon, the beast, that's the antichrist and the false prophet, the second beast to gather all of the kings of the earth together at a place that is called Har Megiddo, where there will be this great end-time battle for the great uh, great day of the Lord. Okay, now we look at verse 14. These three frogs said they're spirits of demons performing signs. So we've seen that this is one of the key functions in the tribulation period, that the Antichrist performs these deceptive signs and wonders to deceive the world. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 24 that if possible, he would deceive even the elect. These go out performing signs. They go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty reminiscent of what we just studied in 1 Kings 22 on Sunday morning where uh, a deceptive spirit goes out to deceive Ahab to coming to battle even though that's what he wants to do and he willingly goes along. He knows he's being deceived. It is that same idea. These uh, demons will deceive those who want to be deceived who are already prepared to go to battle and that location of the battle is going to be in Israel. So they are clearly out to destroy the last surviving remnants of Israel, going to gather them uh, to battle to that great day 
of God Almighty. This is referred to in the Old Testament passages like Joel 2 as the day of the Lord. And this term refers to the uh, the end of the tribulation, the uh, actually the campaign of Armageddon. The Greek word for war there uh, or battle is polemos, where we get our word polemic, and it really refers to a military campaign which could take place over a period of a year, year and a half, two years even, uh, as all of this uh, transpired. And then in verse 15, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So we'll have to stop there. This is going to be an important verse to look at because of the way the concept of thief is used in relation to the coming of the Lord, that this is a term for to describe the second coming, not the rapture. And so we'll see how that ties together uh, next Tuesday night. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to come to a greater understanding of end-time events. But what we see, first and foremost, is your control of all events in history and that we can be confident and relaxed no matter how uncertain or chaotic times appear for us. We know that you are still in control. We can relax. We can trust you. And we can be confident that you will always uh, watch over us, provide for us, and protect us. Now, Father, we pray that you would watch over us as we travel home this evening. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.